welcome in to Nacho's Glen House Stories. As everyone knows, there's two things I love talking about. Number one is plants. Number two is soil. Now, the good thing about that is they sort of go together, for those of you that don't know. Uh, joining me for this episode is Bill Fontenot, uh, who has been a professor at North Carolina State uh, for a long time. Great career there. And Bill, we had done a pre conversation um for the podcast and i felt like we, we could have recorded that one we could probably record this one today and put it out as like a double album old school style because there's so much information needed on the subject of soil in general so let's start off with this very um it, it seems like this is something people should know but i think it feels um obtuse to people at times, of defining just what is soil, like, like what's soil, because we we see it on products, we 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 have it in our 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 gardens. What is it? Thanks, Steve. Well, soil is is actually a very specific thing. It is made up of the mantle of the earth. It is made up of the rocks that we walk upon all the time. But the actual definition of soil has to do with weathered rock. It is the surface layer of these rocks that have weathered for thousands and thousands of years. <clears throat> that depending on the kind of rock that, that uh, is underneath it, the soils become different. And so there, there are lots of varied types of soils. But soils are, are literally very minor, uh, I'm sorry, very small miniature versions of tiny rocks. You know, you, you dig up rocks in your yard or when you're, when you're plant, trying to plant something, you find rocks. Well, if you make it 10,000 times smaller, that's a grain of soil. Okay, they're small. Sand is the biggest portion of this, the largest size. And then they get smaller and smaller to, to silt particles and then to clay particles. And those are all part of the, the mixture of those makes up the soil that we grow in. But also in, in the soil is, is a mixture of organic matter, of the remnants of the plants that used to grow in them. And it's that decayed matter that is coating the surfaces of these particles that help to bind them together and to actually make something that root systems can penetrate and move into and uh, can act and can actually hold water when it rains. So it is a uh, it's a very specific type of material, and because it takes so long to make soil from rock, then. Uh, People have been trying for hundreds of years to make sure that we don't lose it. So we have soil conservation services. Wind and rain and flooding can get rid of soil, and it really can harm a particular area because it just takes so long to make. Well, and that time, I think, Bill, is what's somehow confusing to people, right? That it, it's this almost, is it fair to say that soil itself is a byproduct of geological time? Oh, absolutely. That's exactly right. It takes about 10,000 years to make about one inch of good soil. And so the glaciers, as they receded across the plains in the U.S., you know, scraped a lot of things away. Um, and, 
and made some soil, but it's, it takes a very, very long time. So what we're seeing today, if you were, say, in a farmer's field, and you looked at that soil, you could have gone back 500 years and you would have seen exactly the same thing. Now, you wouldn't have corn or oats or soybeans growing on it, but you'd have forest or grasslands being supported on that same, that same exact spot. Which is... It lasts, it lasts, a, can last forever, as far as we're concerned. Which is really when we we now sort of put our our gardener hat on, Bill. I, I think there is a drive for people to sometimes want like quick answers, right? Like like how do I make this better like tomorrow? <laughs> and here you've just explained to us that it takes ten thousand years just to to create this thing that we sort of take for granted, maybe if anything. That in communicating, one of the things we talked about prior was that's sometimes hard for people. It almost feels abstract to, to people when they go, wait a second. But I thought, uh, but, you know, there's those moments in, in teaching over the years and in, in talking to people uh, both in the, the academic setting, but also in the public setting. Did you ever see, sense that from people that it's almost like, wow, really? It's their mind sort of blows up a tad, Bill, when you say something like that, that time factor. Well, people, the main problem most people have with soils is really not understand, you don't have to understand the nature of soil, but you have to understand what you actually have. And most people think that what, they've, what they're walking on is soil, and what they are uh, putting their plants in is soil, and sometimes it's true, but many times it's not. Now, the, the problem we have is the fact that we gather together in groups. Uh, human beings gather together. Uh, and when they do, they build structures to house themselves and things like this. And the real problem we have is that, is that construction or, or building a structure, buildings and soil do not get along very well. Because that friability of soil, that ability to absorb water, that ability to shrink and to swell uh, as, as it goes, is not good for construction if you're trying to build a house or a building or a roadway. And so the problem that we have is that in many times in construction areas, you have to actually push the soil aside and compact the, so the area that you're going to put the construction in and then build on top of that. The problem comes in is assuming that the soil comes back and that you've got uh, everything is, is back to normal except for where the, the building is. And so, so gardeners are particularly susceptible to this because they think that if they see grass growing or if they see a few plants around that, that, they've, that the soil can be pretty good, but they don't quite know the history of what's going on where they're doing that. Um, so. The question is, what do you really have? And then if you've got problems, can you actually do something about it? Now, you mentioned that, that people are interested in, uh, in sort of a quick turnaround. Part of the, the problems that we also have is that we believe, uh, gardeners kind of believe they're like farmers, you know, as far as the ability to do this stuff. And every state has a soil testing service. You can get a small little cardboard box and go out and scrape up some soil, put it in the box and put it in the mail, and then you'll get a report back that tells you how much uh, fertilizer or lime to put into your soil and to make that work. But the assumption is that you actually have soil. The assumption is that you've got something that is known to grow plants in. 
that now all they do is test the chemistry. And the chemistry is pretty straightforward and pretty simple. And so we think that basically we just get a report and then we sprinkle some uh, lawn, and fertile, lawn and garden fertilizer. Uh, we scratch it in and we're ready to go. The problem is the underlying assumption that of what we actually have is not, what we have as gardeners is not what, what farmers have in their soils. Is there anything practically that people can do to make that distinction of if they they have a true so, a soil or are they working more with I guess what you would call a, a subsoil? Is there anything they can do to make that determination when they, when they're faced with that? Hmm. I don't know whether there's too many places that you can go. You can go to your soil testing service and you can get an idea of what your soil is supposed to be in your spot. But there's not too many people that will come out and tell you, you know, whether your drainage profile is okay. There are a few quick tests that you can do to see how, how fast your, uh, uh, your percolation rate is in your soils and stuff like that. But really, the, the, the underlying problem is that people think that their soil is, that they've got some pretty decent soil, and they may not have actual soil in it at all. If there's been any construction in your area, if you live in an urban type neighborhood, the chances of you having good soil all in your property is probably 20%. You could, there's a 50-50 chance that you've got spots that are really good and a 50-50 chance that uh, places that are not very good. And believe me, the places around your, right around your home or around any buildings are the worst places. Uh, and of course, that's where we like to put our plants in our little gardens, but their soils there are the worst and they're the most highly compacted and they got old bricks and, 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 and debris left over from construction from 30 years ago that's under the ground. Do, does that ever bum you out or concern you, Bill, as a, a, a J.C. Ralston grad student that here we have so many people that their first time they're dipping their toe into the world of gardening? is in that foundation planting and that they're they're almost setting themselves up for unknown failure if that soil is is likely what we're talking about and isn't of isn't actual soil and is really poor quality really well and that brings yes it, it's very frustrating in that process and the thing we would have to do about foundation plantings is just to talk about the need for for actually building or making those areas much better. And so for most, most gardeners, uh, I tell them to do a couple of things. I, I say try to try to begin um, your improving your soil in specific beds, locations where you know you're going to want to put these plants that you've outlined and then amend and fix that particular area better than the others. And the foundation planning is one of the best places to do that. Now, there's a reason why, well, you know, there. if you talk to most landscapers, you know, there, there's the top 10 plants in their area that they'll put in, and a lot of people use only those plants. Well, those are probably the hardiest plants and the biggest survivors that we've got in a particular area. So they will almost always grow. But if you want to grow something else, it's going to be much more problematic. So I like to have to talk to people about actually building these soils and just to make sure that you can actually create 
get back what you think that you might have had to begin with. And so gardeners need to spend time actually thinking about adding things to the soils other than just some nutrition, and that's basically adding lots of old plants, former former plants, uh, organic matter of various types. Is that really, for, for many people, it feels like this would be almost a paradigm shift in their thinking, right? That what we want to do is say, okay, this is what we have, and regardless of, of where we're, our starting point might be, that we got to get up to get down, Bill. Like we've got to build upward to create that structure, and that's going to take organic matter to be able to begin that process for them. Yes, what they have to do is this: the subsoil or areas underneath where you can compact and you can put buildings on have fine enough structure, but they don't have enough aggregation. The little pieces aren't aren't pulled together as as little aggregates, so the drainage is not there. The aeration, therefore, is not there. But the way that you that soils normally do that is to have decaying organic matter as it breaks down, put these humates into the soil and make these these little pockets or aggregates of soil clusters or little clumps, all right? These aggregates, as they call them. And the best way to do that is simply to add organic matter to it. Now, at first, you have it is adding an addition on top, but it will quickly dissipate and get down to a normal level. So you won't have you you won't have like uh, you won't have to climb up six or seven inches to get into your uh, your garden necessarily. It can be flat, but it will it will take additional organic matter in order to make that happen. When we we see this term, and I think for people that are um, getting into the soil thing. There's a lot of, as we all know, there's, there's a lot of content out there, Bill. How much of it is good is a debatable subject for another time. But people will see terms like soil horizons. Mm-hmm. And they, they see that, um, you know, there's, there's beautiful examples of it that exist in, you know, more undisturbed areas like forests, where I think it's a, a very tangible thing that you can actually go look at. I'm not saying to go dig up forest people, but, you know, you would see it more in that setting where... What, what can we extract from that? Is learning the soil horizon something that at least gives you an idea of the geology that, that existed before, essentially what sometimes we're talking about with the, uh, the original topsoil being removed from an area? Well, and that's exactly it. The topsoil that you mentioned, the thing, or the thing called soil, and even the agronomists, they call that, or the uh, soil science, they call, soil is what's... a a combination of two horizons, the O horizon or organic layer and the A horizon, the first layer underneath that of the material. That's topsoil, uh, is those two things together. All right, so and a horizon is basically, if you look out over uh, uh, a landscape and you see where the sky meets the ground, you know, we call that the horizon. So it's a level system that goes across. And, the, and soils literally weather sort of, they weather vertically, but it, it's a big horizontal plane. So, so the the layer on top is an organic breakdown of material, a little humus. Uh, if you grow a lot of grass, a lot of times it's thatch. They call that thatch, but that's just organic matter breaking down. And then right below that, the first mineral component is the A horizon. That and that is actual soil, and that can be anywhere from two inches to twelve inches deep. 
depending on where you are. I mean, one of the reasons we have uh, the, the Midwest is our breadbasket, you know, for us is because they have very deep soils. They have, you know, anywhere from a foot to two foot deep of beautiful soil. Um, and of course, not that many people, and it's, that's the flyover part of the country. Um, and that's because it's mostly, it's a lot of it's farmland uh, that is done that way. So the soils there um, are that way. And underneath that A horizon is the B horizon. And that's a, that is soil that hasn't weathered as much. And that we call that the subsoil. So we have soil on top, A horizon. The B horizon is subsoil. Now the problem we have in, in um, urban soils and in, for gardeners mainly is that many times what gardeners are faced with is, is a combination of the subsoil and maybe some of the original A layer, maybe. So it's a hodgepodge combination. It's got a little bit of soil and it's got a lot of other stuff underneath there. Uh, and that other stuff isn't supposed to see the light of day for 10,000 years. And yet, if we, you could, uh, with a front end loader or a backhoe, you can, you can scrape that off in a heartbeat. And if you've got any kind of construction, it's, uh, it, it goes away. And so is that geological variance that you mentioned, right? That, you, that we can be in this area of a, a county, even a city, a small regional area, and there's 10 inches of topsoil, but if we go a mile over, that geological difference might give those people far less topsoil than those folks do. And we see some of this anecdotal results for people. You know, the person who says, oh, I can grow that. And then their friend who lives two miles away is like, no, I can't grow that. Is that sometimes why we see some of those differentials between people? Oh, very much. Uh, and that's if you have actual soil, if you got real soil, a horizon soil, uh, farmer's type soil, in, in my county alone, Wake County, where I'm uh, located, there are 22 different soil types that we have here. 22. And there are over 20,000 specifically described soils in the, U in the United States. 20,000 different kinds. Now, many of those are similar, but they're not the same. And the flatter your area, without much change in topography, the, the greater the chances are you're probably going to have similar soils. But if you get some rolling hills and if you're in the mountain regions, then you've got a tremendously diverse um, chance for those things to occur. So you're right. Uh, you can have the garden club, say, in, uh, in Raleigh. And if you've got people from different parts of the county, you can have extremely different um, natural native soils. Then you put on top of that the the chances of scraping away some of it or some of it being washed or somebody bringing something else in. And so then the, then the chances of you not having what nature intended you to have to grow in, uh, it goes way, way up. And in fact, we call that hodgepodge of material urban soils. And it's a classification in horticulture that we use now uh, to describe, you know, it, to describe what happens in gardening areas. If we are in, if we're talking farmers uh, growing fruits and vegetables, we're talking mineral soils. And there's all different kinds. But then if we're talking urban soils, we just know that there's going to be a hodgepodge of, of problems. Now, so identifying specifically what you have 
is not easy. However, in some sense, the way to ameliorate or the way to fix that actually is quite easy. Uh, well, it, it's similar no matter what you do, whether you're in sandy areas or whether you're in clay areas, you can do sort of the same thing and it works in, 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 uh, in most cases. So, so what is that though? Like, I mean, and I think is, is some of this looking at it and saying, regardless of our, our context of what we have, is just some of these good soil like stewardship practices is, is the way to start. And what would that look like for people? Uh, I'm not quite sure what you mean. Uh, well, just if you have, you, you know, as you're saying, you have people have sand. We have some people that inherit um, a, more of a subsoil layer. We have other people that have a little bit of a mix, right? And they all have this thing. But is there anything that they can all do, like what you're mentioning, that would improve regardless of, of their, their start with their what they're inheriting? Actually? Ah, okay. Well, it, that's the the beauty of this is that it almost works it works this way for almost everyone and that is to put organic matter back into the soil of some form or fashion now the good news is it, it, the the earth is not particular about what kind of organic matter that you put back there it just it just matters depending on how quick you want that material to break down so some materials like grass clippings and leaf mold break down faster and some things um, uh, like wood chips and bark break down slower, but they all tend to break down. So putting organic matter back into the soil, no matter what the source is, is um, is is the first place to start. So when people do that, what's the best way to do that? Are we are we just top dressing with that? Are we tilling? Does it depend on what the organic matter might be to give us that next step? Well, part of it depends on what you are planning to do. Now, old school, like me, think about, and most gardeners think about incorporating it into the soil itself, you know, with a spade by hand or with a fork or with a tiller or, or some kind of implement where they can go in and, and till up the soil. The actual breaking up of the soil with a tiller or with a fork is, is the thing that has the most effect the first year, even if you don't add organic matter, if you went in and broke the soil up very well, no matter how you did it, then the effects you see the very first year of that is going to all be from the tilling. Year two and three and four is going to also, you'll see benefits as the material that you've just incorporated break down. So um, it, it, it's a combination. And so what we're talking mostly about incorporating it in, whether you do it completely into the ground, basically you, you try to, whatever area you've got, you try to get three to four, uh, two to four inches of organic matter. And if you could till it in about six inches, you'll be miles ahead of uh, where you'd be if you don't do that. Now, when you pick those organic materials to be in there? Are there things we want to avoid? Like, do we want to till like fresh wood chips in there? Or do we want to have that where the organic matter is at more of a, a, a humus stage where it's breaking back down? Like what's that organic matter specifically for us or what isn't it? Well, 
like as I said, the first mistake most gardeners make is they think they've got fairly decent soil and they just need to do it a little bit. The second thing is when they decide they're going to make a change, it's not that they pick the wrong things, but there are so many different things that you can add that in some cases it doesn't matter specifically, but it matters a bit. You need if if you want plant-based things. They're kind of the safest to put back in the ground again. Uh, and they won't get too hot. In other words, they won't have too much nutrients in it or, 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 be, or be toxic at all. Uh, and generally, that's easy to do. So whether it's, um, whether it's bark fines in the south or um, hardwood fines in the north or leaf mold or grass clippings or whatever it is, anything like that, it'll, it'll go in and break down fairly fairly simply. Um, chips of wood and chips of bark also work. They just take a little longer to do. But if you incorporate it in the ground, you're going to get good results uh, the first year. The problem you run into is, is if you go, say, to the big box stores and you, you look for things, they have all kinds of things. They may have uh, pine bark vines, but they may also have mushroom compost, or they may have things that or manure, but actually the manures that they have only has to be about 50% manure with bedding. So it's not like, you know, it's not like smelly horse poop uh, that you can, you know, uh, that really is smelled. Most of that stuff doesn't have much smell. So, but it does make a difference if it is animal-based that you're putting in. I wouldn't put that much in. You could put some of it in, but I would try to um, do my amendments with plant-based materials rather than uh, than with animal-based, at least to start with. Is that where some of this confusion comes from, mm. Bill? That there's just a lot of products, right? <laughs> there's just a lot. Like it's, it's you know, we had in our previous conversation talked about this. It's like, this is called soil. This is called compost. This is called this. This is called this. And it's walking into the store. And instead of there just being a couple of things to choose from, it feels like there's endless amounts to choose from, that it can just sometimes feel confusing and overwhelming for people. Well, it, it, it is confusing in that there's a, ple- there's a huge variety of products. And, but part of that variety of products is price points. There's like, there's like three different levels, basically, when you go into a big box store. There's commodity-based, you know, dollar, $2 a cubic foot. Then there's, then there's the professional mixed things that you know that it could be $8, 10 or $12 you put into a container. And then they have what's called planting mixes or, you know, other things that are somewhere in between. They all have, they all do, they don't do the same thing. Some you can use by themselves. Some can need to be incorporated in the ground. And part of the confusion is the regulations on what something is actually called, whether it's a soil conditioner or whether it's a topsoil, can be almost anything. You need to read the label because the label should have on the label, the content should tell you where it comes from. Sometimes, though, they say natural forest products. That just means that it came out of a pile of something somewhere that was decomposing. And that's all that it really has to be. So you do kind of have to be careful uh, when you do that. Uh, you know, and I, I feel like that is a good gateway into the conversation about this word 
that people keep hearing over and over and over again, Bill, which is compost. Uh, but it feels like compost is almost—I mean, I, I'll give you my definition. You tell me if I'm on the right track here. How about that's a good start place for this conversation about it. All right. I look at compost as it is decaying organic matter at some stage of that. And that if it's better compost, it's further in that process that we have like a a scale of where the organic matter is at in its decay. Close, where are we at? Well, that is a better than, than than, than the, I guess, the common definition that, that people have. For me, we've done a lot of work with compost and composted materials in the past, worked with municipalities on, you know, working with, you know, some of their uh, uh, landfill type of, of situations. And for my money, the word compost should be used more as a verb and not a noun. Compost is, it's composted bark, it's composted leaves, it's composted wood chips. Because the word compost is an undefined thing. And, and if, if uh, we worked with uh, composters in the Northwest, well, it was all fish waste, you know, coming from the canneries and stuff like this. And in the Midwest, um, it's basically feedlot materials that they scrape up, you know. And, and so it depends on where it comes from, and they still can call it the same thing. So compost, now the compost, U.S. Composting Council has a much stricter definition uh, of how that goes. And a good quality certified compost, and each state has their ability to, uh, to do that. If you go there, you get it from a composter, but you, but composting facilities require a lot of a lot of monitoring to make sure that things don't get into the groundwater, that makes things don't run off, to make things like that. And so, people that actually have organic matter do not call themselves compost facilities; they call themselves uh, landscape facilities, and they age material. They don't compost it. If they compost it, they have state regulations about that. But if it's aged, it's just organic matter. It's a pile of pine bark vines sitting on the ground. And so, but they can, as they sell it, you can sell it as compost. It's just not necessarily certified. So, so and but you're correct. The more degraded it is, the less that you can see the parts, the more it becomes humus. That's what you're looking for, is material that has spent some time. Now, you can do that. In one sense, you can compost something in as little as 21 days. If you do investor composting and you put a lot of energy into it, you can finish material in 21 to 40 days. But most people, if they windrow materials like that, it'll take anywhere from three months to a year, depending on the material. But it all kind of looks the same when you're putting it in the truck and bring it home. So... Well, and when you you hear people ask, and I think this is this is a tricky this is a tricky one. So people don't send me hate mail on this one, okay? That when we have people that I think are really well intentioned, and mm-hmm. they start like they wanted to start a compost pile or a compost bin, right? Like we hear about this all the time, 
and we see it out there in the world. But to get to that rich, humus, dark thing that they're talking about, are they are are many people unaware that maybe some of the the practical temperatures that that pile or bin has to hit to to make that same kind of finished idealistic thing that they're hoping maybe for? Well, that's the key problem for people doing composting at home. Uh, Most of the composting that I've spent my time with is in larger commercial facilities, and the whole key to composting is pile size. If you get sufficient mass and sufficient material, then it, you can heat. It will heat up. It'll go from mesophilic to ther- you know to a thermophilic, and you'll get these uh, temperatures in there, and it'll rise, and it'll it'll then it'll fall. You know, as 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 we know, compost does. But at home, it is really hard to do that. And you've got to have an if you have aeration, if you've got uh, some moisture, if you've and you got enough size, then you can, and you bring it to the right temperature, then it works, and it works almost every time. The problem at home is we don't build our piles at one time. We have a bin, and we start putting stuff in it, and then you know, then what do you do with it once it's once it's there? Uh, what I like to do from a home composting is is sort of an old three bin system. And I make it out of pallets, you know, and, and I just sort of, uh, and, and I make one bin and I fill it up. And then once it's full, I, I dump it into the second bin. And then I start filling up the first bin again. Then when that one finishes, I take the first and second bins and transfer them one more time to the third and second bin and fill it up. And so it, it turns it so you get some aeration and it gives, and you make sure it has enough water. Uh, but composting at home is hard to do. It is very hard to do. It's not hard to find organic matter, but it is hard to do a good job of composting. And God bless those people who can who have a, a good compost system and it works, because for every one of those, there's ten that fail. Yeah, I mean, I've I've got you know two acres of gardens here, Bill. I have no shortage of organic matter that comes out of them, um, but I have always felt like the work that would have to go into it to do it really well would be almost a part-time job for me. And I already have about 17 jobs um, to be able to manage it. So do you think for people that the the sourcing, and you mentioned municipalities, and I want to get your opinion on this, have in your in your time, in your position there at NC State, have you seen municipalities be more interested in this subject over time because they collect a lot of organic matter from, you know, be it leaf pickups or debris pickups or whatever, that they're becoming a little bit more interested in being involved in a cycle where people in a local community might have a source to at least go get some organic matter to use in their homes? Well, if you're going, if you're looking for a local source and and you can, um, uh, say you've, you've got transportation, a truck or something to go pick something up, and you want to pick something up locally, then that that's the place where I would start. Um, is to is your local uh, 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 public uh, system. Now, of course, what was it back in the eighties? Uh, they they uh, the the people the municipalities were you know 
having to repurpose. Uh, they would fill up their landfill and they'd be done. They'd have to they'd have to permit another. Well, they were having a lot of trouble permitting landfills because nobody wants it around where they live. So they realized that 30% of what goes into a landfill in the past was organic matter. So they passed a law and said no more organic matter in these in landfills. Well, and so they would put those in a separate area. And so they had you had uh, construction land you know uh, landfills and places like that, demolition and construction, and that was for organic materials. They've moved that into um, into uh, developing landscape mulch and materials for. Um, for their for the community, and you can take your stuff there and dump it if you've got your own materials, or you can go there and pick it up. Um, but I'll tell you, depending on the municipality, depending on how old they've been doing and what's going on, some some of them are very good, and some of them are really struggling. They all thought that they were going to make money out of doing this. And by you know they would sell it in in Walmart or they would put it somewhere else, put it, and they find that they're not don't. It's that's much more difficult than what they thought it might be, and so, uh, but it becomes a cost avoidance for the municipality. So they actually they get dump you know they get the tipping fees for people bringing it in for commercial people. So uh, they won't make a lot of money at it, but it's okay. But you've got to watch these things. Uh, it it takes you know. In these places, um, engineers know how to make compost 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. But you got to monitor, you got to test, you got to see, you got to change, and then everything keeps moving. But you don't have that many people with that kind of training doing these things. And so a lot of times they just sort of look at it, and if it heats up, they think they're doing a good job, and, you know, it's. Eh, eh. However, they are they most of these places could be good sources for mulches, uh, you know, because they grind them up and then they, they toss them out there and after a while they put them back in. And depending on what you're doing as far as organic matter, it wouldn't be bad to put it in, particularly if you're looking for sort of a long-term reclamation. So um, I'm a big fan of of checking it out and doing that. But then I spent a lot of time visiting municipalities, you know, that have issues with their materials and saying this one's ready that's not ready that's ready that's not ready you know and so it does take some some specific knowledge uh to do that and not fortunate unfortunately but but most of the time the the people that the industry the area that does this are the people that handle the garbage because you know they're picked up in the similar systems into the process and most of the time the people that are transporting our municipal waste aren't really composting, you know. Yeah, it's not the focus of what they do, obviously. No. And and I think it's it's interesting that you say that because what I've always, um, Linda Chalker Scott, who's a professor at Washington State University, was a big person in uh, getting me to reach out to like arborist and, and wood chip and tree companies to see if they could source, you know, Round wood chips or leaf litter or whatever it was, and that's something I've done for you know 10, 12 years here. Is that a place for people to start too? In particular, if they're looking to maybe just build like a top dressing of organic matter layer, where like reaching out just to arborist for things like that, is that a good place for people to go? Well, today 
that is one of the more reliable places to go. Uh, and it's certainly a good thing. Uh, they even have apps on your that you can have on your phone that you can sign up for a load of wood chips from the arborist because you know the arborists have you know they 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 grind up a tree or limbs and things like this. They gotta dump that and they gotta pay to do that. But if they have some place where they can just let it go in somebody's yard or, or in the cul-de-sac or someplace where people want it. They would rather do that, and because the the phones are smartphones are so good about this now, that's a very good place to do it. In fact, there's a whole grouping of YouTube videos on wood chip uh, mulching and wood chip growing, and that's taking these wood chips and it's it's not even putting them in the ground anymore. You can put it on top of the ground and put layers of these things down with a little extra compost or, or something that's finer in there with it and let it sit over the winter build them in the in the in the fall and winter and then the next year you plant in it so you can literally grow on top of the ground without having to go into the soil to do that and there's a whole you look at and that's why it's also confusing the most gardeners because people say oh you don't even want to go on the ground anymore no our soil's terrible what you want to do is grow out here on top of the but it is a way that does work and so to me, you know, if you're a lot of gardeners are older and it's a little harder for them to move around and they don't want to get that, you know, it's hard to get in there. And if you don't have the the wherewithal of the finance to have somebody come in and, and incorporate it for you, you can actually put it on the ground. And it does work. And so arborists, chips, and things like this are wonderful places. And if you've got some time where you can think ahead and try to get them and get the material in, then that's actually a great way. And uh, is, to look at doing that. Is, I'll tell you a quick story that I haven't told you before, Bill, last time we talked, but I have a friend who um, is, he knew he wanted to do a garden in this particular area. And the soil uh, lives up on you know, a hill. There wasn't a lot of existing, you, you know, what we were defining earlier as probably true topsoil. And he's on this hill. So what he did was for, uh, I believe, yeah, it was two years. He got wood chip, leaf litter, combo deals delivered. And then he just let it sit there for four years. Mm. And it just broke down time. And, and if someone had that, no, grand people, that takes some foresight. Like he was, he was in it to win it, Bill. You know, he was like, I'm going to, I'm going to garden in this space in the future kind of moment. Is that almost something that people could start doing? Like just with a, even just a little bit that that time, as we mentioned earlier, so important sometimes to allow those organic materials to break down by the time they come back to it. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And that is some of the, the uh, there's been some work on mulches, some research on mulches in the last 10 years. Uh, and not everybody in the world even knows how to use mulches. There are places that don't even use anything like mulches. It's not that they don't have bad soils, but it's just not part of what they do. But there's some work that's been done that shows that if you put a mulch on the ground and you don't till it in, you just leave it there, and you leave it there for three or four years, you're going to have about half to an inch of topsoil in about three or four years. You're going to have some of that beginning to change. And so you literally can set it on top of the land. And if you've got time, it will break down and it will break down and go through that soil and through that 
layer of, of, of material, and it will begin to make soils. So it is, that's very much a, uh, a process to be done. And that also speaks to the kind of things that, that we need to think about when we mulch. Not only as we build soils, but we need to watch our mulching too. Um, because when you're mulching your garden bed, you, in order to continually build soil, Oh, let me, let me back up one second. I talked to a farmer the other day, well, the other day, a couple years ago, and he says, he says, I grow two things on my property. I grow corn and I grow soil. And that's what they do. They put things back into the soil. They, you know, the, the, the stover and everything, everything goes back in. So he's constantly upgrading and building the soils of what goes on, put a cover crop on and tills that back in constantly adding material back to it. Um, and so, flash forward to, uh, to mulches, it, gardeners, many gardeners will, will, will select a mulch and, and it'll look great, but they, a lot of growers don't, a lot of gardeners don't like the fact that they've got to add more mulch next year because it breaks down. Or I don't like this one because it, it goes away too fast. And then I have to put more on top and have to go get some more. But actually, if you're looking at building soil, that's exactly what you want. You want mulches that will break down because then you're automatically adding and building to your soil. If you think you're building your soil simply by letting the mulch go down two or three inches and putting another couple of inches on top, how great is that? But if you think, Jesus, this is just going to cost me money. Well, and, then it's and I think, you know, I always answer this, Bill, when people bring it up. I say, you don't have enough plants. If you're... If you've got all this mulch that you're concerned about how fast it's breaking down, it means you don't have enough plants and you're not thinking about soil health in building it and you're too concerned about mulch. I had somebody the other day send me a comment. They were like, I like a nice clean finish look, a nice mulch look. I'm like, you don't have enough plants. I didn't, <laughs> I didn't start gardening to look at, at you know wood bark of any type or pine vines or leaf mold or anything. Though I, I, I got into gardening to look at plants. You made a comment. Uh, in a talk that I saw you do, and I want you to give us this because to me, this was such a, a genius way for you to communicate this of the weight of topsoil, of like yeah. actual true soil versus when people go into big box stores or other places and they see some bag that says topsoil on it and the differences between those two things. Yep. Yep. Well, y you can go in and find soil of uh, fine bags of material in these box stores called topsoil. And a lot of times they're about 40 pounds uh, and it's called 40 pound top in the trade. And basically it's, it's a, it's, it's a bag of topsoil and it's, it's generally very dark. Uh, it's got a, but it actually is nothing but organic matter. There is no true soil in that process. And the reason is just the weight. Remember I said that, that, Actual mineral soil, like the A horizon, is uh, made out of rock, right? Well, a cubic foot of real A horizon soil is 80 pounds a cubic foot. That's dry. 80 pounds a cubic foot. Okay. So if you, you buy a bag of topsoil uh, in the big box stores and it's, say, it's usually more like between 10 and 15 pounds a cubic foot. All right, so so it's so it's 20 or 30 pounds. But you take a three cubic foot bag of real topsoil, 
that'd be 240. You would not be able, you'd take three people to pick that up. So they don't sell actual topsoil. They sell an organic material they call topsoil. But that is actually to top dress for something, and or you can blend it in. Okay, and uh, it's it's a great organic matter material, but it is not true topsoil. It's just not heavy enough. I mean, truly, because topsoil, you know, you can walk on it, you can run your tractor on it, uh, you can then scratch it up, and you can grow corn or wheat or soybeans or anything you want to, or trees. But if you take a bag of this 40-pound topsoil and drive your car over it, you're done. It's not coming back. <laughs> and, and that is, again, I think it's so interesting. And I wanted to ask you about the mycorrhizal fungi issue that we talked about last time we spoke that, mm. you know, we have these things and I understand the industry's need, right? Everybody's trying to grow businesses, and pay bills, and make a living, and total understand it. But it does get confusing for folks. And we've got these terms. And, and I almost feel like um, mycorrhizal and mycorrhizae is becoming almost like a, a buzzword kind of thing that it's going to lean itself more tar- towards being a, a branding marketing thing than of actual value to people where they understand it. So give us the quick like the definition of it. And do you share any of that concern? The, the 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 definition of mycorrhizae? Yeah, and just sort of because I think it's a term that people hear, but I'm not sure they actually know what it what it what it is. No. Okay, well, <laughs> well mycorrhizae are are uh, fungus, fungi. And there are many, many different species of fungi. And as it turns out, in forested areas uh, and in nat- natural native soils, the these fungal um, these fungi that live in the ground will actually partner with many of the other trees and, uh, and, and uh, plants that are growing in an area. And they will literally bond. Uh, they, they look like little root systems, but it's just a vegetative structure. It looks a little bit like a root, but it's not. It's a fungus. And, these, and they're, they're, they're cruising around, and they find roots, and they actually merge with them. And the mycorrhizae become an extended network that the root could actually draw water through. And so mycorrhizae are fungal partners that you see, uh, that we see in native um, uh, areas, uh, places that, that we see that, that, uh, that are uh, sort of undisturbed. And, and frankly, the mycorrhizae, it, it is, it's what's called a symbiotic relationship because it's a win-win. It's not like they're invading them and, 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 and taking things just from them. They are, but they're allowing the, um, the root systems to expand five or six hundred times their normal size. And so, and in, and in return, the mycorrhizae get about 25% of the photosynthate that a plant makes goes to these partners. And it, they feed the mycorrhizae. And it's a wonderful symbiotic relationship that you find out in nature, okay? Now, the problem that we have in production is that we generally produce at a higher rate of nutrition and, and we, we push plants, you know. We're, uh, we, we, it's not a natural order of things. We, you know, we don't grow, um, you know, tomatoes that are, you know, an inch, well, we find them now about an inch in diameter, about the size of the original tomato. 
but uh, we're growing a lot more. So our our agricultural production tends to not allow for the the uh, this mycorrhizal partnerships uh, as great. But what manuf- what some uh, marketing people have decided was, oh, we can have mycorrhizae and we can add it because it's an important thing to put in it. But if you're growing in containers, for example, uh, micro- you can't find mycorrhizae very much uh, because they're not needed and, uh, and the high sauce concentrations actually kind of retard their growth. So we don't see them much. The, it is ex- exactly what you want. If you've got a large garden area or, or natural areas, that's what you're looking for. You want these guys to be there. The problem is that people say, oh, you, we add mycorrhizae to this material so it'll be there. That's okay, but mycorrhizae only work within a certain temperature and moisture content. And if it's been in a bag on a pallet out in the sun for two months, it ain't there anymore. It's all gone. Now, the good news, particularly about building soil that we mentioned before, is that one of the other things that's missing in that subsoil that we don't see is any kind of microbial life at all. There's almost nothing growing in subsoil. All of the beneficial things, including earthworms, are all in that A layer. And so that's where we also improve our soils is we, we generate life. We put life back into it. And the good news is all these things chew and feed on organic matter. That's what they eat. They don't eat the rocks. They eat the organic matter that's in the soil. So by adding organic matter to the soil again, not only do you create the soil structurally, but you provide food for all of the thousands and millions and millions of microbes that are in there. You know, I said the other day in in the talk that I gave that the average number of earthworms in one acre of good field soil is a million. A million earthworms per acre. Okay? There are over five tons of microbial active material. If you took them all out and you weighed them, they would weigh five tons per acre. That's how much the life is. And so one of the great benefits of, of building the soil with, with organic matter is that it will uh, add the life back to it. And, you know, as, as we talked before, uh, you know, there was that old uh, movie, you know, um, uh, uh, with uh, Kevin Costner. Uh, Field of and, Dreams. And exactly, Field of Dreams. And, and, and the byline was, build it and he will come. And that's the point. If you build these soils and you add organic matter to it, all of these microbes that you don't have will magically appear. They will all show up. And so you can add life back to your soil, which is what you need to do. Not so much, the mycorrhizae will be in there in some, depending on how much you disturb that area. But if you've got big areas and natural areas, then you want, you want life back into it of all kinds. And if you get that life back in your soil, you, you build resilience. And that's the term that we, we hear now more for horticultural materials is, is resilience, being able to take high temperatures, low temperatures, being able to take a little drought in that. And part of that is microbial life in the soil. Mineral soils, real soils have microbes in it. Most of the urban soils don't necessarily have much in there at all. 
I'm going to ask you to get a little philosophical here on this question. Do you feel that part of this is a lot of the the mindset people have is out of agrarian culture and out of the agriculture side of growing things? Where for people who are home gardening, that's, that's not what they're doing, right? It's a very different thing in many ways. And that some of the things we're talking about, it almost feels like for home gardeners, they thought there were like secrets, like magic, like alchemy, that the, the farmer knew that they didn't. And yeah, there's experience, but some of it was actually just, I almost want to say, Bill, like the old school kiss method, you know, keep it simple. Um, and maybe that people wanted to overcomplicate it by thinking there were like these alchemies to something to improve their soil. Well, for every gardener who has had a bad experience with their soil, they've all got a reason why that's happened. It may or may not be true, but and it won't be the same as others. And so there's a huge number of 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 um, reasons why, and I'm making air quotes here, you can't see it, but I'm making air quotes, uh, why the soil didn't make it. And part of that is they try to think that it is really complicated. Some of it is complicated. I mean, photosynthesis is complicated. Respiration, uh, the water moving through roots is really complicated. However, from our standpoint, we don't have to do that. We just have to kind of keep it between the lines, you know. We don't we don't want it to get off in too much in this direction. So we, if we can get a set of here's a simple way to get started, and here's how to sort of go about and check it and to make it happen. But just like you said, I think in one of your podcasts is is that gardening isn't for everybody. You know that there does need to be a bit of work. However, it's not magic. And most of what happens is magical. I mean, taking carbon dioxide out of the air with a little sunlight and a few minerals, and, and you actually could, you know, make something that it, I mean, that's kind of miraculous from my standpoint. But at the same time, in order to move that forward, doesn't take as much. And usually there's one or two limiting factors. Well, there's several, about 15 limiting factors for gardeners somewhere in the process. But all it takes is one or two of them to be a little out of kilter for things to stop. And it doesn't, uh, and the problem is it's hard to kind of figure that out. And so there is a, there are, there is, there are people who don't want to spend much time and they think it's an easy thing to do. There are people that think it's really complicated and, and you got to have all these things to make this work. And both of them really aren't right. There's kind of, there's, there's a, <clears throat> there's an economy of scale. There is an economy of 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 motion uh, that you, that that you need in order to to hit your stride in whatever it is you're doing when it comes to gardening. Um, and everyone's got to find what that is. And so part of it is philosophical. But my my philosophical point is, let's breathe some life into the soil. Okay. Let's let's <clears throat> change it up and and move things forward 50 years by instead of having an inch of organic matter, let's have 10 inches of organic matter, and let's put it all in there, and then we'll see how things work. And then we kind of let, it's when, to, when, it's when to, to allow nature 
to do its thing. Now, if you put a plant in too much in the shade and it's not going to grow, then you know better than to do that. But you know, you put it in the wrong spot. But if you watch where the weeds grow, <laughs> they'll show you the best places to grow. <laughs> well, and, and as we the the day we're recording this for the guys listening to whenever in the the future or the past or however it works in that temporal displacement of listening to podcast, um, it would have been uh, Christopher Lloyd of Great Dixter his 100th birthday today. Um, oh. And I posted on Instagram because I have all these people don't know this about me, Bill, but I collect Christopher Lloyd of Great Dixter clips of video and audio because it's just a good reminder of things. And in the clip, he says, you know, gardening is what you put into it. And for too many years, his, his exact quote is hack writers have been trying to convince people that gardening is low maintenance. And that I think in so many ways, what you just said is that, right? We have to understand some basic things, give some time. What we put into it is what we'll get out of it. And it almost sounds like for soil, it's this similar thing. You know, you mentioned before that, you know, people complaining about, oh, I don't want to have to you know, top dress the bed again and things like that. But, but it's those things we put into it that get us back what we want from it, which is plant performance and flowers and, and all of these things. So it is a, a, a give and take relationship. Oh, exactly. Exactly. And it is very much what you put into it. And it's, it's just from our standpoint, being educators, uh, you kind of like to have people, if they're going to put out the effort, let's put the effort out in areas that will help them be the most successful. And, of course, we do that with farmers, we, you know, because they work hard all the time. We just need them to, you know, there's only so many hours in a day. And so you want, you want them focusing on the things that will move them forward. And the same thing is true for gardeners. Um, and, unfortunately, marketing, not marketing people, but marketing as a point – tends to make you think the way the advertisements will, will warn is that there's all these problems in this, but what you need is this one thing, and this one thing will help you. And you go, oh, that's what I need. So you get kind of convinced us what you need, and that's really not it at all. But I find people who listen to, uh, uh, who, who are gardeners and do that, they're much more practical they understand it's uh, most of them it's the long haul but the way you get people interested in gardening is to give them some success and so uh giving them the you know if they try for 10 years and they aren't very successful they go i'm not really very good at this yes which is one of the big challenges right is getting people where they have that like you mentioned as educator you know getting people where they have success with that time they put into it is just like with anything life i mean if you're, you're doing this thing and it just keeps not working every time at some point you're going to be like this thing stinks and you're moving on to the next train that you know comes by i want you to hit on the topic that um you're in a region of the united states i'm in a region of the united states where i have to imagine especially in your position i mean i'm just a a guy with a podcast and active on social media bill you've been a professor at nc state I can only imagine how many times this question has been posed to you. Well, I've got clay, right? Like clay feels like this much maligned particle. (laughs) Whenever you hear it, nobody, I've never had one person come up to me when I was traveling or anything who was like, oh, I've got clay. I feel excited about it. But 
are, are they right to say that? Are they wrong to say that? W- what's been your uh, what, what's your take on the whole clay being maligned topic? Well, most of the time when I when gardeners are talking to me and they say, "Well, I've got is this really thick clay," there's a very good chance that what they're talking about is a subsoil product, and so the material is that. In fact, North Carolina is, you know. Uh, we, we, we don't grow, but we manufacture a lot of brick in this country, I mean, in this state. And part of it is our nice red clay soils. But when they make the bricks, they don't make brick out of soil. They make it out of subsoil. It is the clay material underneath the soil that they use to make bricks. And so if their people are talking about clay, then they're saying it doesn't drain very well, uh, that it, it's really hard to, to work into. Uh, which also means that it, there's very little aeration that it can get too uh, uh, waterlogged and stay too wet. Usually, what that means is that they're they're further down in the process, and that 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 is a bad place to be. And if they were to work that up, break that up, and to add some organic matter, they'd be much better off. However, clay loam soil, which is clay with a little bit of sand being thin there, so it's a loamy texture. They're wonderful soils. They're very high in cation exchange. They, they hold a lot of nutrients. Um, they're very good, but that's only the specific soils that are done that way. Now, you don't water them and you do the same thing as you do for a sandy soil, but they're still very good soils. But when somebody talks about clay, they're generally talking about subsoil. And whenever I show photographs of subsoil, people go, oh, that's what I, they keep pointing. They look at each other, they say, that's what I got. That's what we have is right there. So what they've got is something that shouldn't see the light of day for another 10,000 years. So it's not a bad thing. It's just never been designed to grow anything in, and it has no life. So they're not going to be very successful with it. You mentioned, uh, and now for all of you, now remember, this is why you don't listen to one podcast. You listen to all the podcasts because they piggyback on each other. By the time you you listen to all the podcast people, you're going to be so much better of a gardener. Your life is going to get better. Woodland fairies are going to visit you. We all know this. So you mentioned cation and cation exchange capacity is something I have ranted on um, where I feel like many people have no idea what I'm talking about when I bring it up, Bill. <laughs> yes. um, would you, and I'm sort of springing this question on you and I'm just curious, um, if you tested subsoil and you tested a, a true topsoil from a, a similar area, would you see a cation exchange capacity number difference? Or would you, would you assume that you would see a difference between those numbers? Um, it would actually depend on how much organic matter was in the topsoil. Um, the, the actual material that's now... The, top, the soil on top, if it's a true clay particle, is, is, about, is the smallest size particle of soil. You know, there's sand, silt, and clay. Okay? And the subsoil should be bigger particles. And so the larger the particle, say, if it was a, the same material, if it's a clay particle, it has more cation exchange because it literally has more surface area, say, per cubic inch or per cubic foot because you just have more area. But if you go to sand, which is the same made out of the same material, it'll have a much lower cation exchange. 
capacity because the surface area of, of a cubic foot of sand is much, much smaller than clay. The smaller the particle, the more surface area you have in, a, say, a given cubic foot. So if you go down into the subsoil, you should have a lower cation exchange capacity because you have less surface area for places to attach itself. Now, having said that, one of the best ways to increase uh, cation exchange is to improve organic matter because it has a high value of, um, of uh, cation exchange and it helps to coat the surfaces um, and it tends to create little aggregates. Not that it has more cation exchange, but then it has more, more places for the water to move through. So it's a, it's a soil atmosphere thing as well as uh, a nutritional thing for something like that. And when you have for for us in particular, and you know, there's there's portions of sand in the United States. So many of them, obviously, coastal or near bodies of water and Great Lakes area, places like that. I I think could you just my opinion has always been people who have sand have the opposite problem that people who have a, a clay loam, let's say, have that their challenge is that material does not hold nutrient as well as our material does. So they tend to have that problem. They can have problems of leaching where just the nutrients just mm -hmm. go away. Do you, I, I always wonder, Bill, should we get the people that have that problem in the room with the people that complain, complain about more clay content soil so they can just hear that other perspective of it occasionally? Well, it is just the opposite because when you get down toward the coast, the problem there is they have to fertilize too much and they have because uh, the water runs right through. Uh, and so it also pushes the nutrition further down below where the root zones are, are found. And so it can be problematic. So what we like to do if we're trying to improve that or balance that out, guess what? It's about organic matter as well. It's about adding organic matter to the soil to help slow down the rate of water loss to improve cation exchange capacity so the things stick there to the sand particles. And so a sand soil, well, you've got clay-ish soils, you've got sandy soils, and then you've got below that would be urban soils, which are you know, subsoil. So sand is above urban soils as far as, uh, as that goes, but they're not as fine. But if you break up the clay and then you add organic matter to the process, then you are doing the same thing. So if you've got a clay type soil, you can probably, you can get by with bark based materials in the clay because you're easier. But if you're doing more in the, um, in the, in sandy soils, what we recommend is, is more, more uh, finer material like peat based, uh, and material like that, that do break down because Otherwise, you get you get these uh, big chunks of bark sitting in the sand, and they don't really doing much good. So you want to spread the whole process out a little more. So find organic matter along the coast, um, uh, and you can go to, with more of anything um, as you get toward clay to break it up. Let's talk about one of your specialties, but first, oh. I want you to define this specialty for me because I think for a lot of people, it's a phrase they don't hear a lot. Um, in their worlds, substrates. Give me, give me just like the the 
the, the Twitter 160 character or less definition of substrate? Well, a substrate is what we used to call potting soil. And, uh, but the, the, the correct term for most things used today in substrates is soilless substrates. Basically, um, you know, we're talking about making soils and we're talking about improving them and stuff like this. But if you've got a container and the container is, you know, is, is normal size, in other words, smaller than yourself, then, then mineral soil tends to be very bad uh, in, in containers. And so, um, uh, because the, the soil profile that actually pulls the water through is much shorter because you, you, your soil column is, is only as tall as the pot is. Whereas in the, even though you might have clay, you might have two, three feet of clay. And so once the rain hits the top of the surface and begins to pull, gravity will literally pull it through the process. But if it's only a foot deep or six inches deep, it doesn't drain very well. So substrates are, are generally organic-based mixes uh, that uh, do not contain mineral soils in them. So basically, the things that you would use to grow in containers, production, either, uh, say, woody ornamentals or uh, greenhouse crops. And that's the area that I've worked in the most is with professional growers for both nurseries and uh, greenhouses. So let's let's get to this because I, I it's so funny. Um, shout out to my friend uh, Kara, uh, who has an Instagram account, Blooming Joy Flower Company. Um, I had shared with her uh, a while back a a simple potting media uh, recipe that I use for just general herbaceous perennials, and we and I, t- I talked to her about how I tweak it if it's this plant or I tweak it if it's that plant. Um, and then she she has shown it. And then you, you get a flood of DMs of what's your what's your what's your what's your potting mix? What's your potting soil mix? I get the same exact thing. Um, walk us through like the that like like when someone is thinking about uh, buying potting mix or or making their own or whatever the case is, Bill. Like what separates an effective one from a lesser effective one, or is there a difference, or does it just depend upon the plant? Are you talking about gardeners? Just, just, just good, good information on it. Yeah. Home gardeners, anybody, you know, I mean, I think it's, it feels to people like, um, it's again, confusing, you know, again, it's another one. There's a lot of products. There's peat, there's perlite, there's core, there's vermiculite. There's a lot of things that end in ite, and they're like, I don't know. I don't know what any of this stuff does. Oh, okay. All right. Well, it's. It's it's like you in your other life uh, when you were a grower in Oregon, right? Uh, if you grow in containers, I mean you're growing in basically soilless materials. Uh, you try to you may use very the, the same mix for almost everything, or there are growers to do that, or there's a few special. But you don't usually have ten or twenty mixes. You have maybe three or four, depending on what you're doing. Professional grower needs are different than gardeners' needs. Um, and so they want something that's light, that's very consistent. And so there's only about four or five things that they put in there that they use that they know that they can get. The problem with, with uh, and, and, and those are generally priced more expensively than they would for homeowner type potting mixes. Okay. So they're more consistent. 
because it's all about the irrigation and fertility they put on, and they do it almost on a constant basis every day. Um, and so it, it's, a, it's a different way of doing that. But if you're talking about a homeowner or a gardener who is looking for, for potting uh, material, there's more problem for them. Because you can take any particular material, uh, any potting soil, that's a national brand. I don't want to mention a brand, but anyone that, that might have a national following, okay? And you can go to any Home Depot or Lowe's or Walmart or Kmart or whatever, and you can find these products. They won't have the same thing in them in Oregon versus Texas versus Florida versus New York. They just won't. And the reason is that all of the material, and this is a big deal, all of the material in the big box stores come within one day's trucking of the stores. Okay. That's 500 miles. All right. And so if they've got to haul, you can have the best, best thing in the world. And you're in, if you were in Ohio and if it, if you're going to ship it to Texas, you're just uh, on a retail basis, you're not going to do it because the freight is going to be way too expensive. So everybody sources their materials within one day's trucking. So, but they can't find the same thing within one day's But they can find things. If, if you do it right, you can still make things out of bark finds in one place and, and peat in another, as well as different. You can give different ratios to where they perform in the same fashion. The problem with gardeners is that, uh, is that, is, is in a local place that somebody says, I use this particular mix and it's a wonderful thing. And then you know, they get their friends from, uh, you know, from uh, Charlotte and I'm in Raleigh, said, or, or they say, fine. So they go back to Charlotte or even South Carolina and they try to find the same thing and it, it's not, it doesn't have the same material in it. So it won't perform the same. So there's more variation from location to location with these materials. Um, so potting soils are much more variable um, from one location to the other. Now, the next question is then, what about can you just make your own? Well, yes, you can make your own. Um, but really, if, if, if I were a gardener and I had something that, I, that worked great as a, as, as a seedling starter mix and I like that, I wouldn't put that in my big uh, five-gallon pots to, that sit on my on my uh, deck. I just it it wouldn't be the same thing. So it is a much more complicated problem uh, to find something that is uh, a good good mix. What you want is two things. Uh, for gardeners want they want something, and it's not about packing it in. It's about making it as light as possible so that it has proper drainage. The other problem is if you use local materials, they may break down faster than others. Peats tend to break down a little slower uh, than, than local materials you have in your yard, but bark breaks down even slower than that. So it, it what I like to tell people to do is, if, is to, uh, I, I'm all for people having their own mix. Okay, making their own things and, and being able to put their things together. But in a way, um, if you don't really know much about that, I you know, 
the first mixes were the um, uh, soilless mixes were uh, out of California called the UC mixes, and they were peat and sand. Okay, then the next group of mixes that came out were the Cornell mixes, and they were peat, vermiculite, and perlite. Okay, and so those types of materials, if you take 60% peat and 20% perlite and 20% vermiculite, you can grow anything you want to in those things. Okay. Um, you, if you're further south and you want to use some bark, you know, it's three parts bark, one part peat, one part sand. You know, there's just a number of ways that you can go. But it is, it's, I would find something that you, that seems to work for you and I would stay with that uh, and to, to see how it goes. Um, most things that are called potting soils, you also need to look at how much they cost. If they cost you $2 a cubic foot, it's not going to be that much. It's not going to be that good. If it is uh, uh, more expensive, then chances are it has a better uh, chance of working. Many of the big box stores have their own brands. Even though they're another brand, uh, even though they're, they're called something else, they have they, it's theirs. They don't say low special things or Home Depot special things, but it's, they have their own line. And what they do is they charge less for those things. Okay. And I will tell you that the vendors, these guys will, uh, mix uh, manufacturers get beat up all the time by, uh, these big box stores, you know, for two cents. They get, no, no, you, no, we're not going to have that. No, you're going to, this has to be a lost leader. I, you know, we need these five, five, you know, five bags for $10. We need, you know, and so, but most homeowners think that they're all good. And well, the problem and, is. And isn't that one of the real challenges? Like you're saying, like, and I'm just going to pick on a company here, people. And this is not me making a brand endorsement. Now, if they'd like to send me a few pennies, I mean, I would take them. I mean, maybe I'd send them back. I mean, it depends upon what mood I'm in, but, um, you know, a company like Promix out of uh, Canada that their product just to give to to put some hard dollars to like what Bill is mentioning here that um like a, a three cubic bale of Promix might retail for you for 36 38 dollars somewhere in that ballpark but yet you go to big box stores like Bill said and you're seeing like a one cubic foot bag is like four dollars so in your world, it's like, well, it's, I can get three of these for 12 bucks and that one's 38. This must, you know, it, it, there are differences here like between, between these products. I mean, for, from your perspective, from a professional perspective, not from a gardening perspective, like what are those substrate differences? So like, what are the, the ingredients, the blends, like what are they doing that does make it different? Well, they're having consistent grades of materials. The, the biggest things is is what they put in. Most of these mixes are no more than three to four components at the most. They generally have peat moss in them. They could have coconut core in them as a, as a sort of a combination with peat. They could have bark in them. Uh, and some of them may have perlite in it, which causes it to drain better. But sometimes they just put more bark in it. But bark... Just as I've worked with these things for over 40 years, okay? Bark is the most variable material nationwide of any other material that you have. You get peat out of Canada, it's going to be much more consistent. Um, 
and ProMix is one of those places that uh, you know that that has those things. If you get it from professional, uh, for for from if you get the mixes that are made for professional growers, they will be much better and they will do better for you. They're also going to be more expensive, but they will be. And you can find some of those in um, in uh, retail uh, uh, centers for sure. But there's a reason for that, and they will be the same almost every time. And the reason is, see, if 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 you go to um, a big box store and uh, you take it home and you plant geraniums in it and then they don't do well, okay? You go back, you get another bag of mix and you get a new geranium. But if a geranium grower who's growing 10,000 geraniums and his geraniums don't, now he's got a million dollar loss. And so these professional companies have quality control. They have um, technical support um, and they have people that can help and they help growers all the time if they've got an issue or a problem. But most retail manufactured material have none of that. And so it's just more variable. It doesn't mean you can't find a good material and it doesn't mean you can't find good products because you can't. But the chances of it not working well is that. Now, people ask me that all the time. They say, Bill, what's the best mix out there? Which one? And I, particularly if they're professionals, uh, growers, I say, you pick a company, you don't pick a mix. And you pick somebody that's got service for you, somebody with good quality support, uh, quality control, and technical support. So if you've got a problem, somebody comes out and looks at your stuff. And they help you. And they will give you so many free um, uh, nutrient uh, tests and things like, like this because they want you to succeed. So, but that's not true for a lot of the places. You know, the big box stores, the customer's always right. And what happens is... <laughs> They beat up on the manufacturers. They say we had ten bags returned, so you owe us so much money, uh, and then uh, you know, then the vendors just pay them. So, well, and I think, and what you just mentioned for you know to let you guys know, I mean, from a grower perspective, you know, being there and knowing so many still, um, what Bill just said is exactly it. Because me growing, you know, twenty thousand Helleborus is a, a real different mix than if I'm growing twenty thousand Agapanthus. Um, it's a, it's a giant difference in performance. The plants want something different from a soil culture perspective and it it varies, you know, just like plant performance in a garden, plant performance in a a potting media is going to vary greatly as well. So as we're, we're starting to head towards the wrap up here, I want to get your opinion. And I'd ask people over on Instagram to uh, throw some questions out that they had for you. And one of them was actually the conversation that uh, you and I have last time we spoke about peat moss and that in Europe, there, especially in the UK, there's been a movement towards peat-free conversation. And I, I feel like, I don't want to say it's gotten to a fake news status when people talk about this subject, but it feels a little like that. It, I think people are making some claims about what's going on with uh, peat free versus peat moss um and just and you gave some really good insight to that so i wanted you just to share that with everyone okay i'll be happy to um well i've, I've worked with uh, the peat industry as well you know the people that that do that and soil mix manufacturers for like i said a very long time peat in itself as far as growing material is a wonderful thing to use to grow uh it is the basis of what's done in Europe, and it has been for a couple hundred years. 
The Canadians are also using peat, uh, and all of our peat basically comes out of Canada rather than than uh, uh, than Europe. But they don't. But but the the difference between the two is harvesting process, and the reason why peat free is an issue is because of where they dig it from. Now, for 50 years, <clears throat> peat came out of bogs, okay? And bogs were places where nobody ever went. They couldn't build anything on them. They were useless land, and so they drained these boggy, swampy areas, and they'd harvest the peat out of that, and they used it. Well, and then about 2000, actually about in the, about the 90s, uh, we started putting the ecology what went on with this, and so they didn't come out of bogs. They peat came out of wetlands, and the areas that were there were the breeding grounds for thousands of species of birds and mammals and insects and 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 sort of part of the entire tree of life for circle of life for many different species. And so all of a sudden, the bog itself, as it's when when you harvest out of the bog, it's like I don't call it strip mining, but basically you basically take chunks of this stuff out. And usually peat was harvested in about a one to two foot long loafs. And so they would literally just start making giant holes in the ground where they were pulling this out. Well, once you do that for about 40 or 50 years, you got this really giant gaping hole. And now it is no longer a wetland. It is just a giant hole in the ground. So they didn't want that to happen. So the, the peat-free movement came out of let's not use our bogs or our bog or wetlands for a product to grow plants in. And so the UK decided in 2000 that in 2010 they were going to be peat-free. Well, that never happened because the they couldn't get rid of peat that quickly. So then it was 2010, then it was 2010, it was 2020, and they're still not peat-free. So the movement of being peat-free is, is, is an environmental issue, okay? It is not, doesn't have anything to do with the material that's being used as far as growing is concerned, it is where it comes from. So it's a little bit like strip mining. Well, are we gonna strip mine this area or not? Yeah. Now, there is so much peat in the world that we haven't touched hardly any of the peat sources that are available globally. However, in Europe, they got a real problem. Now, the Canadians, on the other hand, have harvested peat in an entirely different way. They have these very, you know, the problem in Europe, not to have a lot of European friends, is is that you know I I'm from I'm from Texas, and that's the size of about almost all of all of Western Europe all by itself. So. They're very small countries. You know, you blink and you're going from one country to the other. But in Canada, they have vast acreages of areas, and they're harvesting about less than 1% of the available peat and uh, wetland areas uh, in Canada at any one time. But what they also do is they only scratch about two inches of, of, of peat off the surface. So instead of doing a foot at a time or two feet at a time, they're doing two inches at a time. And what they've also started doing is they, after they get down to a certain depth, which isn't really far, they stop that area and they, they, they actually reseed it with sphagnum again, and they actually start to grow the process. So they're actually 
Um, not just digging giant holes in the ground, they're actually turning these areas over. And because there's so little of that land that they're using, then it, as far as the impact, is much less environmental impact. Okay? Now, they're saying they're peat-free, and they're trying to be peat-free in Europe, but now the peat's being harvested in Latvia, Lithuania, in the Balkans, Latvia, Lithuania, and Estonia. That's where it's coming from. And Russia has more peat than everyone else put together, and they haven't even touched it because most of it's under ice. But still, they have tons of this stuff, and it's everywhere. So, so the peat-free movement is an environmental movement, uh, and it is some, it's something that needs to be considered for sure, but, but the fact that peat in itself is bad is really not, not the case at all. It is the method of harvesting that has been more of a problem um, in the peat industry. And the Canadians and other people that are... that and The Canadians scratch two inches off, and then they take giant vacuum cleaners and just suck up what they've, what they've pulled off, which is entirely different than... Uh, than the way that the the Europeans have done it. Well, and that was my concern. That's why I wanted you to add some of that insight was because I, I've gotten enough messages on the subject bill where I was almost getting the feeling that people were associating it with peat is somehow bad, right? That peat itself as a material had some kind of negative environmental component to it. And they were confusing that with that harvesting process that you were just mentioning that happened over in the UK. So I think it's it's important that people understand like these these differences between these things because but I mean I'm just going to speak from my own experience here kids. Um as Bill mentioned bark is <laughs> another one of these like very generic words that exist in this and when I was in Oregon at the nursery our bark was from Douglas fir trees, but here in Tennessee, my bark is not from Douglas fir trees, and the way that interacts with potting media is really different. I mean, oh, yeah. it, it's been yeah. it, it's been very one of the things that um, I have also seen is sometimes like fir bark media is Douglas fir, uh, Sudasuga for you kids playing the at home botanical game um, is very fast straining sometimes in comparison to what I see here in this region. So there's these little nuances where peat levels that playing field if it's coming from these reliable sources and and doesn't give me that problem where I'm like, oh, this stuff is trying, you know, think about it from yourself from a practical perspective. You know, you've got a, a pot, you've got stuff in it, it's hot, it's drying out really fast. It's holding water. It's drying out really fast. You don't know what it's doing. I want consistency. <laughs> That's what I want. I want consistency from these things. So we had also talked about core and I want you to just give us the, 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 the quick version of core. Do you think it, it, it's definitely part of the marketplace as far as an ingredient in potting media is go? Um, will it continue to be, will we see just, it's a, a, what's making the choice in it? Are there growers that you work with as an example at the professional level? Ooh, some prefer core, some prefer peat. Is it going to break down where it's that way, at least at the pro level? Well, um, core is now, uh, we did some of the original work with core, um, you know, back in the U.S. when people were, manufacturers were trying to figure out how they're going to use it. 
and they thought that it was going to replace Pete because everything was going to replace Pete. As it turns out, nothing's replaced Pete <laughs> at all. But core is definitely a material that can be used. Uh, it is fibrous like peat. It handles a bit like peat once, once, it's, uh, once it's in its, its native form. And it works out pretty well. It tends to... Um, it also is... Peat, though, tends to be, as it dries out, becomes more water repellent, more hydrophobic. Okay, And so it, that's always a problem. Core, as it turns out, doesn't have this issue. And so it is sort of naturally hydrophilic almost at all moisture contents, uh, whether it's dry or not. And so what people are using core in with peat-based mixes, particularly professionally, is they're blending it together as sort of a physical wetting agent, okay? So it, it helps uh, blend it in. If you go to 100% core, which you can do instead of peat, then it tends to dry out differently. It, it Water moves through it at a different pace. It tends to evaporate off the surface a little differently. And growers who have been peat growers or growers with peat-based mixes have a little trouble kind of getting used to how that works. But core is not one thing anymore. There's now four or five different grades of core based on size that you can blend to get better things in. So core is actually picking up professionally into, most, into many of the mixes today. Um, and so it is. It doesn't replace peat, but it's definitely is something that needs. I if I was going to make a mix up, core would be part of the mix, along with uh, with peat. Okay, and, and there could be other things that would be added to that as well. But core is definitely something that uh, uh, that can be used uh, in that process. And it's a nice little insurance uh, policy if you blend core and peat together. Bark tends to be very variable because when you put a pile of bark somewhere and you, you know, you turn it or not turn it, then you know it could be quite variable in the process. But I'll tell you, we have we didn't talk about this before, but but what's the newest thing that's coming on in the professional mixes is wood fiber, and these are wood chips that are steamed and then extruded through uh, uh, these uh, uh, presses, and they pull the fiber to where it really becomes very fibrous. And it is a less expensive material. Uh, peat's about a dollar cubic foot. Uh, so is core. Perlite's about two dollars a cubic foot. And um, uh, wood fiber is about fifty cents a cubic foot. It doesn't replace peat, but it's replacing perlite uh, in the process. So, and a lot of growers are beginning. There's a big push uh, with lots of. Uh, Everyone's looking at wood fiber and how it can be used, and what it can be done, and whether or not it robs nitrogen and all that stuff. And, and most of that's all been worked out pretty well. But so that is something that you might, I don't know whether you'll see that used yet in um, uh, retail mixes, but that's uh, kind of the one of the new things for, and most professional growers that I know of, large professional growers have all looked at, at using uh, wood fiber in their mixes. The problem is it doesn't blend easily. You can't just put it in, in, a, in a rotary mixer and blend it up because it just turns into a ball. So it has to be blended properly so it's it's a little different so you need some machinery to do that. But some people are are, uh, are saving a little money on perlite uh, because it is it's a fiber, sort of like a fibrous perlite. I don't want to use that as the wrong term but 
Uh, it, it causes, it improves drainage, uh, and it lasts for quite a while, actually, compared to peat and even um, core. See, now Bill's got me interested about wood fiber, kids. This is how geeky I am about it, kids. Bill said that, and I'm like, hmm, interesting. And I, I, at, at the end here, you had said this in your talk, and uh, people who listen know um, I have a great uh, respect uh, Mark Weathington's been on the podcast before, the current director at the J.C. Ralston Arboretum. Um, you were a graduate student of J.C. Ralston. Um, give us just, I mean, because I, I didn't ask you this last time we spoke, what kind of teacher was J.C.? Because I, I didn't have a chance to meet him. I've seen a ton of videos. I've, I've seen content of him from the time. But what was his passion to get people excited about horticulture? Was it evident? even as a student of his? Oh, that was, that was, yes. JC was excited about, about plants and horticulture from the start, but where, well, he shined everywhere, but, but you go into a classroom with JC, it was magical. He was on fire in the classroom. Uh, he was kind of a quiet fellow, but he had energy and people that, uh, people just loved uh, to hear him talk. He taught a graduate course. Most graduate courses have like 10, 15, 20 people in them. He taught a graduate course in, uh, in uh, landscape plant physiology, and he had 50 to 75 people in that class. They loved J.C. J.C. Was, uh, was a tremendous teacher. He was always teaching. Uh, we go on field trips or we go look for things, and he, uh, he, he was just a, a wonderful source for a lot of things. He was a keen observer. And he did more with a pencil and a ruler than anybody I've ever seen in my life. He he knew about plants. He knew where they worked. He knew what was going on with them. And then he was just as comfortable talking to growers. And growers were just as excited because J.C. always knew the new plant. And and so then uh, he was always somebody that growers wanted to talk to about what's coming down the pike and what's what's new. But as a teacher, he was tremendous. And in fact, he was... I don't have that same gift that he has about uh, about capturing people's attention and and doing those kinds of things. And he was uh, he was tremendous. He shaped my um, uh, my career. Uh, he went to North Carolina State as I was finishing up my PhD, and I'm at North Carolina State because JC said you need to come up here. This is where you need to be. And I said sounds good to me. If it sounds good to you, so and I'm in 45 years here. So JC is a tremendous. Uh, was that was the thing he did the, the best was teaching, just being around him. You always learn something when you were around JC. But he never talked about himself. He just talked about you and what you're doing. And by the way, look at these plants. He was terrific in everything he did. Cross ties of these old abandoned rails Wondering about the stories they could tell I think of all the weight I carry on my own And I try to empathize with all they bear There's something about the sun that brings me back to life it's just like staring in your eyes And I 
can't tell you what it is I'm doing here All I know is nothing's felt so right So let me stay Feeling this way I never want to leave this state of Everybody's putting down this brand new hammer, but they're just whispers way up here. They got no rhyme. For the reason why it's wrong But there's still this burning in my ears Some folks say I probably shouldn't live this way But the last time I checked This was my life For you to decide